Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Hello, 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 it's Brendan here, vetgurus.com. Episode 227, Friday, February the 4th, 2022. VetGurus.com, that's the place to go. And don't forget, we have our little Etsy store. Um, go to our VetGurus.com and click on the store and order some merch, some fantastic merchandise. Um, I it, could takes say the that pressure. it takes the pressure off our wonderful sponsors, doesn't it? If, if people go to our store and buy some merch... They first of all look good, and Brendan, I've got, I've been rocking my phone cover um, all the time with the uh, Vet Guru's logo on it. You'd be, you'd be surprised how many people ask me about it. Excellent. Well, I do like my Vet Guru's socks, and uh, I have been known to wear my Vet Guru's apron in the kitchen, Mark. And it's quite, it's, it's got the Melbourne look, um, the Vet Guru's apron. It's all black with the Vet Guru's logo and um, very good quality too, I must admit. So if you're thinking of, if you decide in between what to buy on the Vet Guru's shop, then I strongly recommend the apron, Mark, um, because it's, you know, you could wear it while you're doing surgery if you want, if you're, or if you're in the abattoir, if you're a meat um, processing vet. Um, you never know. It's got multiple uses. Michael Woodworking out in the backyard, chopping a tree down. Who knows? So there you go, vetgurus.com. And hello to all our new subscribers. And uh, I think with that, Mark, um, how's your week been? It's been a, it's been a uh, busy. You were talking about chopping trees down. And um, and I didn't have my vet guru's uh, um, apron on, but I have, have been doing some heavy-duty gardening um, just uh, just getting the the electric chainsaw out and and taking some uh, wayward branches limbs off the trees in the yard and out the front. So um, so yeah, I have been doing a fair bit of gardening in the and it's been muggy here in eastern Australia. It's been hot and muggy, so it's been difficult work. Yes, very muggy. We finally had a bit of a cool change today, which is fantastic. We're recording this a couple of days before we put out this podcast and yeah i was getting a bit sick of the humid weather mark um i i enjoy some of the countries that i've been to that close to the equator that have a bit of humidity but um i don't think i'd like to live there mark um for a very long time unfortunately i'd, I'd go tropo i think would you cope with the weather in these humid countries mark long term i'd love it i'd love it <laughs> you're already you're already tropo, aren't you? <laughs> so yes. Okay, I'm going to jump into. I, I think we have a little agenda there, Mark. It, it has you down as the first news story, but I'll jump ahead because I know you're still researching yours, and I will do my news story. It's a very quick one, um, and it's uh, fascinating. I thought an Arctic hare has been found to travel at, or have travelled at least 388 kilometres in a record-breaking journey, Mark. Um, it travelled 
for that distance in just 49 days, the longest distance ever recorded amongst hares, rabbits, or any of their relatives. Researchers um, put some tracking collars on 25 hares that they captured near the tip of an island in Canada, Mark, and they um, followed them. But they couldn't believe when this female... um, imaginatively named BBYY, Mark was her name. Um, she travelled 388 kilometres um, before they, they, um, they uh, I think they don't know what happened to her at the end. Maybe she died of exhaustion, Mark. Um, she died of unknown causes a month after her amazing trek, Mark. So um, after reaching her final destination. And interest, inter- interestingly enough, um, they think that these hares um, travel in family groups and they were a bit perplexed, Mark, why um, she travelled such a long distance in such a short period of, period of time. So in extreme temperatures, um, averaging about eight kilometres a day for seven weeks, Mark. What do you think of that? I'm fully impressed. You know I'm not an easy person to impress, but but that bit of wildlife trivia, um, uh, it, it I wouldn't have expected. I thought those um, those Arctic hares, those beautiful, you know, they make beautiful photography subjects, but, uh, but I thought they would have been fairly territorial and I thought they would have required a fairly, you know, an area that they were familiar with um, in order to survive. They needed to know where the lichen was and where the the stuff under the snow um, where they could access. And so the fact that um, it might be a a routine thing for them to travel a long way is a genuine surprise. Yes. So apart from that individual um, effort there, um, yeah, I don't know what it, maybe they're going to have to start putting some more radio collars on them. Perhaps there's a brand that um, have been... Promoted by Microchips Australia, Mark, one of our sponsors. Uh, who knows? <laughs> uh, probably not. Um, not that the Microchips Australia <laughs> colours. <laughs> uh, uh, they're excellent um, product there, but um, I don't think he, um, Doug has managed to corner the market in the Arctic there, Mark. Um, I think they probably managed to use a, a more local um, radio collar in that area. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know where they can go with this. They need to throw some more collars on some more Arctic foxes, Arctic hares, <laughs> and on the foxes as well because they're their, they're their predators, aren't they? Um, so, you, you would think that the foxes would be following the hares. Yes, so perhaps they needed to um, put some on both of those species at once and um, see if there's a correlation between them until the Arctic hares disappear, Mark, down the gullet of the foxes. <laughs> It has been fascinating that those devices, um, the radio tracking devices, have become um, so miniaturised and uh, so, um, you know, I know the Regent Honey Eaters that were released up here, uh, a big successful release, um, a lot, half of them, I think, had radio transmitters on them. Um, and, you know, those birds are, you know, about the size, body. their body size is probably comparable to a princess parrot, a bit bigger than a cockatiel. Um, and um, and the radio tracking um, devices are tiny, ba- barely make any impact, well, make no impact as far as we can tell on their, yep. their release. 
Yes, I remember we used to put radio trackers on helmeted honey eaters, Mark, back in the day, and uh, I think they weighed a fair percentage of the bird's weight because they're not particularly big birds, are they? Um, only several, you know, under a, under 100 grams, some of the ones we all put in the collars on, I think. Um, and uh, we'd always worry that, hey, is this bird going to get off the ground and maybe we're contributing to that um, critically endangerment of the species releasing them with these collars on and they, they can't get away. Why aren't they travelling very far, perhaps, because they've been weighed down by these um, collars. So, yes, they've advanced a lot further since um, I had my mitts on those um, animals and the research in there, Mark. So that's my article, Mark. It was was going to be a two minute quick one, but it ended up being a little <laughs> bit longer. That what have you got? And I know you've got one that um, you're, you're going to rip through very quickly here. Aren't you? <laughs> I love the way you encourage me to be punchy and speedy. This this is the um, a Nat Geo story about um, uh, an invasive species. So in the uh, in 1960, um, Prince. Akahito uh, travelled to Chicago and was given, um, because he was interested in uh, um, ichthyology, the study of fishes, he was given um, uh, some fish. Um, he was given some uh, 18 bluegills uh, and he took these fish back to Japan um, and released them in the moat around his uh, uh, um, palace. Um, and, of course, as always happens in these circumstances, um, they uh, the, the freshwater uh, fish uh, escaped from that uh, waterway and um, has steadily uh, expanded there. They, in some instances, they've been um, they've been actively introduced. In other instances, they've uh, they've just um, uh, turned up. Um, but they pretty much uh, since 1960, they uh, now. Um, occupy the whole of, um, of available freshwater environments in Japan. And the government's uh, tried various processes. Um, they've, they've promoted recipes to encourage people to catch them and eat them. Um, uh, but, th but these things largely um, make uh, not much difference at all to the population. And interestingly enough, um, despite the... the um, the relatively small founder population, only 15 of the fish ended up contributing to the breeding population. Um, the limited genetic pool of the original uh, um, the original fish seems to have led to no inbreeding depression. They, they are very um, vigorous uh, fish and there seems to be uh, no inbreeding problems for them at all. They have decimated uh, a number of... Um, uh, native species, particularly the Crucian carp, um, and um, in, in typical Japanese fashion, the Crucian carp is a fish unique to a lake in Japan and is beloved as a fermented delicacy called funazushi. Um, but yeah, the, the, um, the good news, the, the good news is that there has been recently um, some uh, DNA work, CRISPR technology, which um, at least holds the promise that they might be able to uh, use the gene editing tool um, to uh, render. And so um, the, the, the CRISPR technology, the DNA technology, now gives them the possibility that they might be able to solve this problem. 
um, through CRISPR, they may be able to sterilise a significant number of the males and um, and result in them dying in the wild. Um, so it is it's still early days with this, but the um, in the uh, there is a reasonable chance that. Um, but it isn't they're not spending a lot of money on this. <laughs> Printed. Um, it, there was an interesting comparison. The US Invasive Carp Regional Coordinating Committee has a $45 million budget, while the um, Japanese are only spending $16 million uh, on their all inland fishery issues, and uh, the bluegills are just one of them. Still, those amounts of money are big, big amounts of money, aren't they, for invasive species? Yes, and... I think he decided to make a formal apology, didn't he, Mark? In June 2005, Emperor Akihito issued a formal apology for having introduced a fish to the country in which the Japan Times called a rare expression of contrition. So, um, yes, I think he realised that perhaps he shouldn't have brought them back. Um, although, um, yeah, they certainly were encouraging to be cooked and um, even even made into a, a fermented delicacy, I see there, Mark. Funazushi funa um, was the term they used for it. Um, and also um, cooking them with their skin on, Mark, I think was very popular. CRISPR um, fish. Oh, so there you go. <laughs> Crispy fish. So there we go. So another invasive species that's going to be very difficult to eliminate and um, to history repeats itself doesn't it mark um i i do think we're on the cusp i think a number of these technologies um might be um you know whether it's crispr or um uh, drones with lasers i don't know but um I, I get the impression we're just on the cusp of of maybe significantly impacting a number of these with technology over the next 10 or 20 years Let's hope so, Mark. Let's hope so. And I think with that, we're going to jump into our main story this week, which is about hemipenes in reptiles, Mark, and the removal of said organs. So the reason why we wanted to chat about this is because it's a surprisingly common procedure. Well, it certainly is in my practice, Mark. Maybe we're chopping too many of them off. Do you do this procedure very often? No, it is a very, very common procedure. And and I think it um, uh, it is a, a um, I don't know, I feel like it's a bit of a measure of some of the, the um, inactivity and husbandry problems that uh, um, that these animals um, uh, have to work with. And so, yeah, it is a really common thing for us to uh, look at hemipenal prolapses and as a consequence of the long-standing nature of some of those prolapses, we have to think about uh, um, uh, amputation is the only way to deal with them. Yes, absolutely. And I think that the, the two main points that I think we... I'd like to get across are the, are the reason, are the actual technique of, of removing them and the fact that it's a, a fairly simple technique because of the anatomy that we're dealing with there. Um, so don't be afraid for those veterinarians who are exposed to this problem for the first time. Don't be afraid of 
chopping them off um, and we'll briefly go through that process and also the reason why it does occur and you've hinted at that very strongly already Mark haven't you husbandry issues there so perhaps if we talk about maybe if we jump into the actual amputation itself first Mark and so we have a non-viable hemipene in a Typically, we'd see more often in in the snakes um, in in our practice, but sometimes in in the lizards as well, Mark. Um, and it'd be interesting to see whether it's similar um, percentages in your practice there, Mark. Um, and the good news is we're dealing with a copulatory organ only, so unlike our other species, um, like a what's the one that people would probably compare with a, a cat where you have to worry about doing that perineal urethrostomy with them. Um, it only has one function there, that reproductive function. So the good news is we can do a simple transfixing ligature at the base of that hemipene and we chop it off. Um, and it's a very simple and easy and short procedure. They're done ideally under a general anaesthetic or, or under a sedative with local anaesthetic at the base of that hemipene there. And it, it is literally that simple in, in, in my opinion, Mark. It would be interesting to see your thoughts on this in a sec. But um, And don't panic if you are doing this for the first time. Don't panic about getting the whole of that hemipene there. But try and get it right at the base of the hemipene there where it's going into that hemipenal socket. And and more often than not, once you've done that transfixing ligature and you've removed the, the non-viable tissue there, that the little stump or stub that's left will retract back in there, if not immediately, certainly within the next few days. So that's my, how's that for a two-minute summary of hemipenal amputation, mate? It's a great summary, but I've got some questions for you, Brendan. I have some <laughs> <That's> questions. <always. laughs> when when you say a transfixing suture, do you mean do you mean that you take the needle, you pass it through the central part of the hemipene at the base, and do one uh, one knot, and then all the way around the whole base secondarily? Is that that's yes that's exactly what you're describing i see the thumbs up yes, yes um that's what i tend to do with most of them although if it's a if it's a small animal um individual um then i may just do a straight you know clamp it and then um put put the suture across that clamped region there but yes oh, definitely the, the we see um as well as the snakes and it's interesting you're talking about uh which species it occurs in we definitely see it probably 50 50 between square the the two main orders of squamates we see uh quite common in in snakes but also quite commonly in um in lizards and geckos are very commonly uh turn up with this problem um and uh, and where i would think i run a reasonable chance of reducing some of the the other species almost always the geckos end up with trauma that means you've got to consider an amputation and because they're so tiny um you know you can yes. just about use a, a hemoclip hema uh, at the base and, and and lob them off um the, so my next question to you brendan is that in the published literature that i've read um there is talk about um uh simple interrupted sutures over the you know over in the mucosa uh, once you do your 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 um uh 
your, your uh, resection, you're left with a little bit of submucosal tissue in a tiny fold. Um, and, uh, and surgeons, much better than me, obviously, uh, um, do one of those inverting patterns, a continuous inverting pattern to cover that um, submucosa. I don't do that. I just literally transfix and cut and it pops back in. What, what about you? I see the thumbs up in the video. Exactly as you describe there, Mark. Yes, I just keep it simple and I rarely, if ever, I've had any any complications there. Um, sometimes I've, I've gone to the thought of putting um, maybe some ointment, um, antibiotic ointment in, in that um, in that little sulcus that's left there in, in the hemipenal pocket there, um, um, plus or minus cover the animal with some antibiotics depending on how infected or grotty looking that hemipene that we've removed um, with, with the animal there. But um, invariably they, they do very well um, in my experience and, and it's a quite a satisfying <laughs> procedure with them, Mark. Um, and my question to you, Mark, is um, <laughs> back at you, is which side do you remove more often, Mark? Um, do you think reptiles are more left hemipened or right hemipened? So we talk about people being um, left-handed or right-handed, um, and we know our, our good friend Robert Johnson talks about Chelonians, turtles and tortoises, being right or left-necked in that a tortoise will retract its head back into its shell you know, on, on the left side or, or the right side and that individuals may be left-necked or right-necked um, and also perhaps we have the same with the hemipenes. What's your thoughts on that, Mark? Um, are they more likely to use the left or the right hemipene when they copulate? Well, th that's a really interesting question because they're, in the cases that I see, there is a little bit of a tendency for the left side to be more of a problem. I don't know whether you've taken note, um, but definitely there is a, a uh, um, it's not an even uh, lateral distribution. But the other thing that's interesting is that both uh, in my personal professional experience and also in the published literature, um, the the likelihood that these animals will be future compromised in breeding is relatively low, which sort of suggests they can use either side. So it's a bit of a, you know, why are they left 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 handed? Yes, left hemipend. Yes, so the, um, that's why they've got two of the marks. So they've got, they've got one up one, and that's what I tell the clients. Is that I say they've got two of them. So if you want to breed from him, you know, we'll just chop this one off anyway. So um, don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> and they look at me um, with a horrified expression, and, and uh, yeah, but they do remarkably well. So. Um, so the surgery, um, my advice would be don't be afraid of attempting this surgery. Phone a friend, um, email vet gurus or, or another experienced reptile veterinarian um, in your area or region and uh, go ahead and do it because it is, it is one surgical procedure which invariably results in a good result in that we have a, an animal that it no longer has a hemipene that is causing it issue or pain and um, it lives a, a normal life post off post there um, and before we get on to the reason why they might occur mark do you have any more questions about <laughs> the actual surgical technique I, not so much the surgical technique um, but how it applies to 
Um, one of the things that is really encouraging for me with the surgical technique is the squamates, the lizards and snakes, don't have a corpus cavernosum. Um, the hemipenes does enlarge, uh, but it doesn't have that cavernous body, sinusoidal cavernous body f that fills up with blood. But, Brendan, but, and my question to you is, um, uh, Chelonians do. They have a uh, single phallus that does have a corpus cavernosum, and so hemorrhage potentially is more of a problem. In your experience, have you done many turtles, and do they bleed a lot? We're talking hemipenes here, Mark, not um, the phallus of Chelonians. We're going to cover that in another podcast. So I'm going to cut you off there and um, our listeners can get ready to listen to the episode that we'll talk about phallus amputation in a subsequent podcast, Mark. So next question, you have one more question before we talk about the cause? No, well, no, I was going to lead into the causes. What, what sort of things do you think uh, um, trigger this off in your experience? Well, that's the usual market. It's, it's husbandry that may not be adequate with these. And yes, it could be that a a um, a randy snake or a randy lizard that gets a little bit um, excited. But I always think about, my first thing I think about is what substrate do you have this animal on, Mark? Um, because if it isn't a substrate that may get stuck on that hemipane or abrade the hemipane, um, I'm always considering that that's a, a cause. And, it, and it, it certainly is in a reasonable number of cases that they, they're using a substrate that I regard as inappropriate. Mark, what's your thoughts? Precisely the same. I, I definitely think that um, one, of, one of the interesting things when you watch um, uh, these animals in their enclosure is that they have a tendency to wipe their butt on the substrate. So they'll deposit a, a faecal and urate pellet um, and then they really force their cloaca down and, and wipe um, the, the, uh, that tissue on the ground. And if they have inappropriate substrate, if the substrate is too abrasive or particles of the substrate stick to the mucosa that's being wiped on it, um, it definitely leads to a cloacitis. And pretty shortly after that in the males, uh, hemipenes can be uh, traumatised, uh, can be secondarily damaged by that action. Um, and even, you know, uh, we keep coming back to metabolic bone disease, and I definitely see uh, higher incidence of this sort of problem in animals that I suspect metabolic bone disease to be playing a role. I think they get themselves into uh, positions and um, degrees of straining um, that are associated without, uh, with their inadequate bone, uh, you know, their bone strength, I suppose, is the word I'm looking for. And, and yeah, and probably just general weakness and calcium sort of, um, you know, um, concerns there and, and yeah I agree um, including the ones that have the cloacal prolapses and and, and um, the obstipation constipations in, in the lizards especially yeah related to soft tissue um, are made able to strain or, or pass feces and, and, and or not not being able to pop out those hemipenes properly or, or and then pop it coming out not being able to retract them back in there so yeah husbandry as usual we're thinking of our of our um, inappropriate or in um, well wrong substrate, as I'd say to the client. I'd say 
you've got it wrong. I'm sorry, but you need to change um, with this animal. Um, any other co- – I mean, hygiene as well, Mark, is the other one I always think about with these. Um, you know, they haven't cleaned the um, – or changed the substrate for a, uh, a good length of time and then the hemipene has been averted and um, then becoming infected um, with them and, as well. And environmental enrichment, um, just – you know, those snakes that sit in tubs that don't move for large periods of time, um, they certainly are overrepresented in these problem cases and uh, and getting some exercise, getting them out in the sun, getting them to climb around the clothesline, um, monitoring them closely, but uh, making them do some exercise I think is a, a really important thing. And having enclosures large enough that they can explore and... and uh, uh, put their body into different positions. Um, I think that's, uh, you know, we all know that that allows them to thermoregulate it, allows them to have a whole bunch of other uh, ben- muscular benefits, cardiovascular benefits. But I think uh, um, just the health of the cloaca and the hemipenes, Brendan, from environmental enrichment. Yep. Now, we spoke about the surgery. What about the follow-up with these, Mark? Um, what, what do you say to the clients? What's, you, you've, you've performed that left hemipene transfixin ligature partial amputation and you send it home. Um, when do you tend to get them back um, for a bit of a checkup, just in case something has gone wrong with that surgery? I- my one, I usually look at it about three to five weeks after, about a month after. I usually find that um, uh, in periods shorter than that, um, they're, they're, there's rarely noticeable problems. But if there is going to be problems, if there's secondary infection, or um, then about that time, three to five weeks afterwards is when, when I see that be the most important. What very about you? interesting, very interesting. I... I usually get them back in about a week um, and then I will get them back a month or so after that. So I suppose I just do a, another additional check um, within a few days of the surgery there. But as we mentioned early on, the success rate is extremely high, isn't it, for this particular condition? Um, so any final comments, Mark, about hemipene amputation? And we know that we will cover phallus amputation in a future podcast. No, just do it. If you see one, don't be afraid to chop it off. Just do it. I think with that, we're out of here. And Mr. Outro's here. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time